Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 23. It's actually the Uncivilized Journey part three in the last three-week cycle with guests Trevor Boehm, Michael Gay, and now Dewey Freeman. So who is Dewey Freeman? Dewey is a thinker. And he's a profound thinker. You can understand this by the questions that he asked when I proposed the question to him about being a guest speaker on this podcast. He asked to me, I have a couple questions. One, what would you like to get out of this talk? And what are you hoping to get across your listeners? Two, how will you know that they are getting what you want them to get? And three, what of value do you want me to bring to this? As in, is there anything that you want me especially to bring to this talk from what you know of me? These will help me think about what I am bringing of value. So after doing many interviews, nobody's ever asked me questions like this. So it made me think again, what is he thinking in order to ask me these questions in the process of getting to our interview. And I believe that the intention was mutual accountability, that we're both prepared to deliver the best of each other for you, the listener. And I found that to be incredibly stimulating, incredibly authentic, and just frankly refreshing. So let me get to Dewey the man professionally. He is a licensed psychotherapist, a teacher, a consultant, and generally a man of significant wisdom. He is the co-founder of the Gestalt Equine Institute of the Rockies, the director of the Gestalt Institute of the Rockies, and owner of his own psychotherapy private practice. After teaching for 24 years at the Naropa University, he decided to move in a more creative direction. Most recently, and in collaboration with Kimberly Beck, he has created the Coming Home Project and Relational Rewilding Retreats. Throughout the year, Dewey spends much of his professional time working with other therapists and skilled horsemen, providing psychotherapy, gestalt equine psychotherapy, parenting and human development workshops, and relational workshops and classes. As I said, I had the pleasure of meeting and spending time with Dewey at the five-day retreat in Austin, Texas with the Men Uncivilized Organization, and he is nothing less than brilliant. Uh, many of the folks that I met prior to and during liken Dewey to Yoda, uh, <laughs> the mythical green creature from Star Wars lore that was always filled with wisdom in a calm, meditative manner of speaking. And I did not find that analogy to be very far off other than the fact that Dewey's exceedingly tall. <laughs> uh, but to that end, I don't want to take up any more time since this is a lengthy interview, chock full of incredible wisdom. 
And I really hope that you have the time to get through the whole thing because there's not much wasted airspace uh, in this interview. And for me, it was quite incredible and a lovely culmination to this three-part series. So with no further time wasted, let me introduce you to Dewey Freeman. Well, Dewey, it's an absolute pleasure to see you and uh, talk to you tonight. It is an absolute joy for me after having spent some time with you this year. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this interview over the past few weeks. And I thought that what I would most want to get across to the listeners and for the listeners, it's mostly women and providers of care, but also men now. And I'm looking for actionable parenting and relational skills in order to improve connection primarily, which leads to more harmony, which invariably leads to more body awareness and reduced body stress. And for me, that's the answer to everything. Because if men show up better for women and their children, everybody wins. So, you know, I would agree with that. Yeah, I'm so excited because you are a mentor, a relational teacher, a men's health advocate. You're just a, a, an incredible fountain of wisdom, as I heard you talk many times when we were in Austin together. So, you know, before we get started and head down some questions and go from there, I want you, if you don't mind, to take a couple of minutes and ground us all into the moment. Sure. I'll be happy to do that. Um, and first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me and for uh, giving me the opportunity to speak and be with you. And the same for everybody in the audience listening to this. So my invitation to each person is to close your eyes, take a deep breath and put your feet on the floor, please. And imagine a place in nature that was a good place for you. It could be sitting on a beach. It could be the top of a ski run before you went down. It could be 30 miles into the wilderness someplace. It could be on your back deck where you look out over a beautiful scene. So first, please find your place and allow yourself to sink into your seat there. And breathe just a moment into that. And in your mind's eye, as you look around, allow yourself to see whatever you see. And when you see something, whatever that is that you see, could be a tree, it could be a bird, could be grass. I want you to allow yourself to say, I see whatever, I see a tree inside I feel. So just allow yourself to, again, I see blank, inside I feel. Let yourself feel whatever that is. Take another breath when you're ready. In the same place. Allow yourself to smell whatever you smell. So I smell blank, 
on the outside and inside I feel. Take another breath and allow yourself to sink into that. And now I'd like you to do the same thing with what you hear. I hear blank. And inside I feel. Allow all of those three experiences to sink in. And then one more would be whatever you feel on your skin. It might be the sun, it might be the cool air, it might be a breeze. So on my skin, I feel. Inside, I feel. You take one more breath and allow yourself to open to all the experiences of your senses from the place that you're sitting or standing. And my invitation is for the rest of this discussion is to be able to hold yourself in that place where you're seeing, feeling, sensing, hearing, smelling, as we go through this discussion allow yourself to open to that. Take one more set breath, please. And thank you. Thanks for that, Dewey. So as I'm sensing and feeling all of this, uh, lovely, <laughs> 72 years of existence has provided you with an unbelievable set of tools that I witnessed and watched in Austin and subsequently listening to podcasts and things. So I wanted to sort of break some of the stuff down we talked about and, and I want to go right to the, to the meat, uh, okay. right, 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 right at the get-go. And one thing that struck me incredibly powerful was contact leads to connection, which leads to relationship, which leads to intimacy. And as a guy mm. who's been attempting to now in hindsight, now that I've seen that, get to that position, explain that because to me, that's the greatest gift I think for us to understand is if we can keep that. And I know the big key here you're going to get to is doing it over time. Mm -hmm. So talk about where all of that came from and why men don't really understand that so well, myself included. Got it. Um, and uh, just sort of jokingly I, I have one more month until i get to the 72 years so <laughs> <laughs> just letting you all know <laughs> um so years and years ago i uh, i well i've been teaching for well over 40 years probably 45 years about 35 of that has been at the university level. And I've been teaching teachers and I've been teaching therapists. And the, the essence of what I try to teach as a therapist and is relationship. That's, that's what I try to teach. It's um, 
one of the things I'll say is that from a therapeutic standpoint that everybody that comes in to see me and see most therapists have been injured in relationship somewhere along the line. And um, if we're injured in relationship, the only way that we can heal is through relationship. That's a core belief of mine. As I was working with that, I was trying to figure out what are the sort of cornerstones of relationship? What, what, what do we do to build relationship? And there's two parts that I've come to. One is the attachment piece that, and I've done a lot of work with attachment and development. But the other piece that I came up with is, is the concept of contact. And, and from sort of my theoretical background is, is Gestalt. And in Gestalt, we talk about contact boundaries. And I started messing with that years and years ago, like in the late 70s is when I was doing training and trying to figure out what contact was. And so I came up with a definition. So the definition I'm gonna share with you is what I put together over the years. And that's uh, contact is the place where our emotional, physical, spiritual, and or energetic boundaries touch another in presence when we're present with another being. And that contact can be with another human being. It can be with nature, it can be with a tree, it can be with a bird, it can be with a horse, uh, it can be with our dogs, our cats, our spirit but contact is that place where our boundaries touch and and the boundaries that i've sort of explored are spiritual boundaries energetic boundaries emotional boundaries and physical boundaries and sometimes all four of those come into play at the same time and sometimes they only one or two of them come into play um but that's what I have built most of everything on. If, you can, if I sort of think about the idea of relationship, the building blocks of relationship are a series of contact. And so as I was messing with that, um, uh, I began wondering and sort of playing with the idea of if in the beginning of a certain relationship, whether it be relationship with a child that's just been born or that we meet somebody and we uh, become great friends or uh, maybe lovers and then uh, partners, um, is what comes after contact. And so what made some sense to me is that when contact between two beings is predictable, and that happens over time, that creates what I call a connection. And connection is that place and that piece where we hold contact, even when we're not in the presence of another person, we can feel that energetically with another person oftentimes. And when that connection, and it's sort of, and that oftentimes that's a fluid process, when that connection is predictable and it's over time and that's reliable, that's then what creates relationship. Um, and relationship is a process to me of 
what goes, what happens energetically between two beings. And I, I might get into another piece in a little bit later, what I call the I, thou, we process of relationship. Um, but relationship is that place and that felt sense of what happens between us and another being. And again, it's not just always humans. It can be other beings, the greater than human world, so to speak. Um, but it sort of begins, it's, it's that contact and connection that begins to sink into our, our bones and into what I would call our soul. And when I'm talking about our soul, I'm not talking from a religious perspective. I'm talking about that part of us, that inner being, that inner felt sense that we all walk around with, if we allow ourselves to be aware of that. And then when that process happens over time, and, and that depth of feeling relationally in relationship with another being happens. And that's predictable that that's actually what creates intimacy between us and another person or, or another being. Like um, I'm a pretty avid horseman. It's, I have horses, I bring horses into my therapeutic work. Um, but it, it's like that intimacy that happens when I know that I get on my horse and I know we're good. And I know that, that there's a very deep level of trust. And so when I'm talking about intimacy, I mean, sometimes that includes sexual intimacy with, for instance, my partner, um, but it doesn't, it's, that's not what it's about. Intimacy and, in my world has to do with that depth of knowing that our relationship is there no matter what. So that's sort of a quick walkthrough of those four pieces. Um, right. When I heard you say it the first time when we were in our, in our session discussing that in Austin, I was taken aback by, again, just the way you just said that, how, when I think of things as a man, I tend to think of things as intermittent is fine because intermittent contact is often enough for me to feel in relationship, which may not at all be the same for the other part of the, the contact cycle and over time leading to connection. And I think over the years, um, I don't know if it's just me, but other men maybe have missed that reality that it's that consistency that's so much more important to eventually end up in relationship and intimacy. And I, I think about this now, as I've again thought about th the words you said with children, and I think about how with kids, especially if they're in foster care or in mm -hmm. a home that is somewhat dysfunctional, mm -hmm. that contact to connection cycle almost never has time which makes relationship very difficult to reach. Right. And then we wonder why kids act out. Right. Because when kids are acting out, it's because they're, they're actually trying to find some place to connect someplace right. to make contact. And, and you're right. The consistency piece is a really big deal. Interestingly enough, a lot of times contact is a very short moment in time. It might be a glance over 
to my partner and just, you know, an energetic connection between her and I, or it might be, who knows, somebody at the grocery store, the clerk, where it's, it's like you, you go, oh, wow, that was really nice. And then you move on. Um, but consistency is a really big deal. I'll give you another little riff here that consistency builds dependability. It actually breeds dependability is the word I use. Dependability breeds trust. Trust then breeds peace of mind and peace of mind breeds softness in relationship. And so that's a, another way to look at it. It's a, uh, but the consistency is a really big deal and, um, and the predictability. Because let, let's say that, I mean, and actually what was really, really nice, <laughs> just so that you know, Chris, it's like you and I haven't spoken for what, a couple of months now? Has that been yeah. about how long it is? Yeah. But, but as soon as we got online, it was like, hey, I mean, it was like right there. Right. And it's predictable. And, and that predictability is, is really a huge part of what builds trust. And if it's predictable that we'll be maybe be in the same room, but we don't really make contact and that can happen. Uh, then that actually uh, deteriorates the foundation of trust. Right. And, or even. Um, oh, go ahead. I'll say, or even more so the predictability of the person not showing up the way they're supposed to in the moment leading right. to just an inability to connect or an inability to maintain a relationship. You know, I think of that yes. for a lot of men who are struggling in their relationships, that, that, that could be the biggest piece is the, the unfortunate predictability of bringing the wrong part of yourself, the shadow part or whatever it is mm -hmm. to the relationship that then leads to that lack of dependability. And then that lack to me, I think the next word would be safety. Although I think it's just a semantic difference to what you said, but yeah. Right. I think part of what happens in our societally is, is we don't, we don't get taught how to make contact as men, as little yeah. boys. We, we oftentimes do not get taught how to do that. And, um, and what we get taught to do is how to do stuff, not how to make contact. And, how we do something is more important than what we do, but we, that's a piece that we oftentimes don't get taught. Um, it, it's more that we become human doers oftentimes more than human beings. And um, at that place of, of truly stopping and letting our boundaries, if, remember the physical, emotional, spiritual, and energetic boundaries touch another being is crucial. And a lot of people, and frankly, women too, struggle with having boundaries around those four things because we actually have to have boundaries to be able to touch somebody else right. or to be able to have contact. And I'm not necessarily talking about physical touch. I'm just talking about touch, like, like, I can walk into a room and go, 
and see somebody 30 feet away and go, oh, wow, something's happening. And I can be right next to somebody and even maybe even making eye contact and going, there is no contact here. And so um, it's that inner felt sense that oftentimes we, we have not learned or we've learned and it hasn't been a good thing for us. So what we do is we protect ourselves in one way or another. And, you know, and again, I can sort of look at that again from the child's perspective now. And if you think about autism spectrum disorders and a lot of the children that have ASD are boundary less based on either missing sort of social cues or missing the innate ability to have the desire to see somebody's personal space or boundary just from that physical Mm -hmm. perspective. And I think, you know, that's a really hard thing to teach somebody who doesn't feel it, let alone us who should be able to feel it, but maybe even lost that ability along the way. And so if you were to say, okay, as a therapist, how would you tell parents to teach their kids this, especially their boys, a young age, outside of what they intrinsically know that boundaries, the ones that can pick the boundaries make the most sense? Say the very last part again. So, yeah. So if you're, if you're, if you're a parent right now and you want to really help your kid be authentically boundaried, safe boundaried, and I mean, effective boundaries in order to make good contact connection with other people, whether it's other children, um, siblings, or parents, how would you say, you know, what would be the best teaching ideology or thought process to tell a parent, Hey, this is what I would tell my kid in order to be ready for effective contact. Got it. Well, probably my answer isn't gonna be all of that uh, welcome in some cases. I mean, I, I'm gonna start with a, just a straight up sentence and I'm gonna talk about what that means. For us to be able to have boundaries, we have to learn to say no. Yep. And when our children say no to us, we have to support that process. Now that doesn't mean, and this is the part I can just see parents because I have seen parents go, oh my gosh, I don't want, I don't want my kid to say no all the time. But the, the reality is, think about this, is, is that we cannot really say yes to something unless we have at least the option of saying no. Otherwise, it's not, it's not a real choice. Right, it's control. And Yeah, it's control. And the work is, and the teaching is, is for us to be able to give two messages at the same time. One of them is, I love you. And you don't get to do that. And the other is, I love you. And you did that incredibly well. And one of the things that we often struggle with is that separation of of love and whether somebody did something really well or whether somebody in a particular case say a kid is misbehaving so even if a kid says no we can say you know sweetie i love you and you're doing a great job at saying no and you still have to put on your green pants all right you just fell right into exactly one of the other topics i wanted to hit 
punishment versus consequences. Wow. So <laughs> I remember this, the, I remember yeah. this at the <laughs> <laughs> so I remember very well sitting there and being in in somewhat of awe of your statements and being like it didn't compute with my teachings to your point saying not saying no and all of this but I think the way you explained punishment versus consequences is very powerful and I'd like you to 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 do that again if you don't mind you know the difference in your mind between what we would call punishment now and what many people think is the best way to parent a child by having a punishment, frankly, thinking it's the same as a consequence when they're not the same. Right. So break that down. Cause again, I, I, in my head was putting the two as almost the same thing. Right. Before I do that, would you be, and we have not had a chance to talk about this. What was the difference for you? The, the, what, the, what the, the struggle, the struggle for me in my head when I first heard it was I equated them to being the same thing. Mm. And so when you started talking about them, I'm like, well, I don't understand this because a punishment really is a consequence. And I really didn't have a clear understanding in my brain from my years of education and, and learning that there was a distinction between the two. And in hindsight, now looking back on it, it's actually sort of silly that I didn't see it, but it's also a testament to how well you were able to delineate the two paths mm. in a way that made it much clearer than what I intuitively believed they were. Right. Um, well, I hope I can do it justice here. Uh, what I often do is, and I'll set this up so that people have a little bit of a context. Um, what we were doing in Austin was actually working with horses with a group of men. And I'd asked the men to break into groups of three and each group of three was to figure out relationally how to put a halter on a horse. And most of the men there never put a halter on a horse. So it was sort of a big deal. And there were certain rules. And what I, what I suggested was that if a rule is broken, then for that group of three men to come up with the consequence for having broken a rule, whatever that rule was. And the rules were like, you could touch, the lead rope with certain hands, but not with only your left hand or only your right hand or those kind of things. And there, there was sort of an exercise with that. And almost, well, not almost, to the T, every group came up with, well, we have to do 50 push-ups, or we have to do 25 air squats, or we have to, you know, roll around in the dirt or typical man jet you know <laughs> it's like so true and it and i i love it and i said well those are all punishments because it's a it's a process of that you get it you you have to do something that is harmful because you did something you made a mistake or you have to feel something that's harmful because you made a mistake as and like for instance a consequence of making a mistake could be a hug. A consequence of making a mistake could be 
hey, let's sit down and figure this one out. A consequence of making a mistake is, 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 well, let's try this again, because actually the way we learn is by trial and error. That's, I mean, almost not every, but almost every learning theory comes back to, we sort of learn by trial and error. And, and when we find consequences, the process of a consequence is relational between us and another being. When we punish, we break the relationship. We inhibit the relationship. We break that contact. So the difference is, is, um, is just that, that a consequence is a process of learning and supporting that learning in contact and relationship. And it might right. be tough. I mean, it might be, it might be really tough. I mean, it right. might be something that somebody doesn't really want to do. It might be, um, it might be, and I mean, I'll give an example. Today I was out riding my horses with a friend and there's this real steep downhill at the bottom. There's a Creek about two feet wide and, was all muddy and my horse didn't want to go through it it was scary to him and he, actually he's really good he goes almost everywhere and i could have punished him by you know like smacking him or kicking him or something like that it was like all that would have done would have it would have broken our contact it would have have ended what was happening relationally so instead of working together to cross this one obstacle, we would have been at odds. We would have been at and at a place where he would have actually had to protect himself. And that's what happens when we punish. If we spank a little kid, they end up having to go into protection mode. It doesn't teach them anything. It just teaches them, well, it does actually teaches them that when we come in to do something like that, it, they have to protect themselves. And it's like, I don't know any parent that wants their child to have to protect themselves from their, their parents right. versus coming in. And it's like, how do we walk into what I would call that I, that relationship? It's like, and, and work through that. And part of what happens with, with consequences is sometimes we create a tough time that we have to work ourselves through. But if you think about it, when we can work our, through a tough time with another human being and come out okay, that creates trust, which is exactly what we want with our children, exactly what we want with our, if I'm talking to men, with our, with our partners, our wives, our, and I'm leaving this open, I, I'm totally, I, men or women can be in relationship with whomever they want, I will totally support that. So, um, but it's like, if we set up a punishment, then the other person that we're in relationship with has to defend themselves from us. And I don't know anybody that really wants that versus coming in and going, okay, mistake was made here. Let's figure out what to do about this mistake. We might have to try it 27 times. It took about for going back to my horse analogy. It took about 15 minutes to get through, to get over that, that 
little obstacle. And it was bad. it was hard because the, the banks were so steep on either side. But then here's the cool part. Once we did it, we went back and did it again. Then we went back and did it again. And by about the fourth time, it was like Moondash is my horse. He's going, I got this. Let me do this for you. You don't even have to, you know, we're good. <laughs> you just hang on while I go through this, okay? And um, so it, it's like the consequence is a relatable moment that we work with to learn. A punishment is a moment that actually damages the relationship. It damages the contact between us. Yeah, and I think of, again, from, the, from my mindset as being a guy, that the relationship killer that seems to make the omnipresent event in a relationship often is going either lone wolf or going passive aggressive cold because yeah. both of those are punishments against the other person for behavior they may have quote unquote did to you and neither of those is ever going to get you what you want which is closer to relationship and intimacy and so for men listening to this what's the better option when they're frustrated or women for that matter, listening to this, what's the better option when they're frustrated than going cold or going lone wolf or going anything non-relational? Yeah, and I mean, what, what you just described, Chris, was, was the whole, is when we go lone wolf or we get passive aggressive or we go, you know, we say, well, I'll never do that with you again or those kind of things, what we've just done is break contact. That's what we've just done. And so then before we get through whatever we need to get through, there, we have created another step where we have to recreate contact before we can get step back in to work with whatever we need to work with. So the, the process that I see is being able to say, this is my experience. When X, Y, and Z just happened, this is my experience. This doesn't feel good to me. I would like to know what your experience was. Because that does two things. One is it's oftentimes really scary for the other person. Because it's like they're ready for us to blow up. They're ready for us to, to come in hard and mean. They're, ready. they're used to that oftentimes. To coming in and going, this is my experience. And that was not, that just like hurt my soul. And that's not what I want in this relationship. Right. And I think about the corollary to that as a parent and your child's having a temper tantrum. You know, you're not going to go lone wolf on your child, right? You're going to stand right. there. Hopefully not, but some people Well, hopefully do. not. You're right. You're right. But, you know, you're going to stand there in the moment and wait till the child is done and hopefully hug them on their way out of it as a sign of, hey, I understand yeah. I'm here. I'm here for you. But you know what? You're done with that. Let's hug it out. And yeah. how much harder that is in a, a relationship with a significant other when, you know, we're sitting there and we feel like the guns are pointed at us or me, you know, using myself as an example. Right. And how do I stay grounded? And guys listening to this, I'll tell you me personally. 
I have a hard time sometimes staying grounded in those moments. And that's my work to do to learn to stay grounded so that the whatever is coming at me doesn't affect me in a way that I become non-relational. But I really just wanted everybody to hear that because I think that's really powerful stuff, Dewey. Yeah, the, the piece that, you know, around staying grounded and the piece around um, and going back to like if our, let's say our three-year-old is having a temper tantrum. Yeah. Um, well, let me, let me talk about this. Let me come in a little bit different direction. In therapy, and in certain modalities of therapy, there's a lot of talk about resistance. And if anybody has ever read therapy books or you've you know, had psychology 101 in your freshman year of college or your senior year of high school, there's a lot of talk about resistance. From a therapeutic perspective, I do not think there's resistance. When a therapist says, oh, my client's being resistive, what they're really saying is, I don't know what to do. And the therapist is blaming it on their client. When a client is doing something where it sounds or looks like they're being resistant, what they're really doing is protecting themselves against something, whatever that is. That's the same way with a partner, that's the same way with a little kid who's throwing a fit. That's the same way with a teenager that's, you know, you ask them why they're late and they turn, you know, they, their curfew was at 11 and they come in at 12 and you go, where were you? And they go, fuck you. Uh, that's not resistance, it's protection. And if we can figure out a way to stand by whomever that is whether it's a client a partner a little kid our best friend and move next to them and go what can i do to help protect you because that's what you're doing then that creates relationship and there's uh in i do i'm a participant in a martial arts called the keto and i'm not going to sit here and say, I'm a Nikito master. Don't anybody think that that's just not true. I I'm working at it very hard, but one of almost every Aikido move is a move of blending with whomever is coming after you and putting yourself in a position where you're facing the same way that they're facing. That's, that's not always true, but that's almost always true. If we can blend with somebody and, and go and like put ourselves in a position where we're looking at the same thing they're looking at, we'll begin to get what's happening. And so this is, this is a true story. About 10 days ago, maybe, I don't know, 10-ish days ago, this is Thursday. So however long a week ago Sunday was. Our neighbors who are very good friends, little five-year-old, almost six-year-old girl and three-and-a-half-year-old boy, we were hanging with them. And the little boy started throwing, he got himself really upset about some stuff. And 
I picked up just a little pillow and he's like hitting on some things. And I'm going, I'll bet you can hit this pillow. And he looked at me and I said, yeah, you can hit this pillow. And he sort of hit attentively and then he, then I helped him hit it. And in about 30 seconds, he was all done throwing a temper tantrum. But it's like, if I can move in and help move energy and move that process through uh, with somebody, that's kind of, that changes everything. And you, and when we can come in with a level of even curiosity, like you mentioned, all the guns pointing at you in a blazing and I know you're being metaphorical and so I'm going to be metaphorical too. It's like, if you can get curious about what are those guns all about? You're going to get a lot further than if you start pulling out your own guns. Yeah. And I think, you know, even in the example you're just giving with the child and the punching the pillow or hitting the pillow, you're communicating a little bit, but you're probably doing a whole lot more through action Totally. And yeah, I through, through energy that the child is learning a communicational skill outside of verbal. Like I am a hyper verbose right. person, right? So most of my communication, fortunately, unfortunately, is verbal. And, and to some extent, that's a skill that is useful here, but sometimes not there. And in, in a case like that, I think some kids would be better off not hearing a lot of words, but watching action and seeing a pathway to uh, either a sublimation of a pain or a hurt or Mm -hmm. whatever. And so talk to the communication piece a little bit, you know, like when we're trying to communicate with groups, pairs, whatever our, our, our our Mm -hmm. local circle is, Mm -hmm. do you, think nonverbal, verbal, is there one better than the other? Is it really just whatever is most effective at the time? How have you thought through that? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and the reason I ask it being the, <laughs> being the horse specialist, <laughs> a lot of that's nonverbal and I've seen the Jedi mind tricks and stuff going on there. So I, I had an idea there might be a, a, a leaning opinion, but a leaning but... opinion here. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Doc. Uh, when we get ourselves really upset. really hurt, sometimes traumatized, lost, all of those kinds of things. We, no matter what our age is, we developmentally go young. We developmentally go young. When we get scared, we go young. I see it all the time with people on horses. I'll get scared and they almost, there'll be, riding a horse and they'll almost go into a fetal position on the back of a horse, which is probably the most unsafe thing you can do. When we are really hurt, say in an argument or a disagreement with somebody, when we are told by our spouses, 
No, I don't want to. I, I don't want to be sexual. In fact, I don't know if I ever want to be sexual again. When we are, you know, hurt on many, many different levels. When when we find if we have children and our children are really sick, we go really young developmentally. Well, if we and sometimes we go to the place of one of two things happen. We go to really young, which is developmentally the first year to 18 months after birth to a place where we are, we don't know if the world's an okay place to be in, we don't trust. And then developmentally a little bit after that from about 18 months to three, three and a half years, we're trying to figure out if we're okay. And that's that separation of personhood and behavior that I was talking about. I love you and. Um, but part of what happens is that when we really struggle, we get pre-verbal. Because I think about the idea of a six-month-old baby sitting in their crib and really being upset. And trying to talk through that trying to be verbal through that. That's just not going to happen. A two-year-old that is really upset, a five-year-old even that falls and skins their knees. And they're even a really, you know, sharp verbal five-year-old who can tell you a whole lot of things when they fall and skin their knees. They're, they're pre-verbal again. What we don't allow ourselves to get with either ourselves or other people is we can be 50 years old, we can be 35, we can be 72 years old and go back to almost that pre-verbal place when we're really upset. And it's like, we can't talk from that place. Our, our nervous system goes young. And being creating energetic openings for somebody to step into and be with is what actually allows our nervous system to get back on board and grow up again. And that can happen pretty quick. I mean, it can happen in minutes. Um, and we can go from being an adult to a little kid in seconds. Um, and that's when, when we do that, people will say, well, I lost my ground. And it's like, that's true. And part of losing our ground means that we go really young developmentally. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's sort of good. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say it, it, it rings true with what Michael and I had talked about with just trauma and how you really can't even access trauma verbally mm. in a lot of cases, because that trauma is in the nonverbal or pre-verbal place. And, and so for people like me who are hyperverbal, trying to talk to somebody who's been in a traumatic state, that's not very useful. Well, not only that, but let me go another step. Let's say somebody drops back to a really young place. If we're able to stand by them literally, and just energetically let them connect to us. And I talk about it from the standpoint of letting them share our nervous system or borrow a nervous system. 
Like when you would see me stand next to somebody, I'm literally letting them borrow my nervous system for a while. And um, what that does is allow them to go down to that place, wherever that is, and naturally and organically move out of that. Yeah. When that happens, the trauma does not stay in our body. We, we can go through some really tough things that we would think would be traumatizing. But when we get to borrow somebody else's nervous system and grow out of that, I mean, literally move out of that. And again, sometimes it's, I mean, sometimes it's seconds, sometimes it's minutes, sometimes it's half an hour. We do really well. What's interesting is that somebody can go into that state. And if we start trying to talk to them, we actually create the trauma because it's the process of being getting stuck in that state, that really young place that is, that's the trauma. Instead of being a 40, 50, 60, 70 year old person that we go down there and then we have somebody come in and go, oh, I got you. You know, I got your back. But when I say I got your back, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm literally wrapping them in my nervous system, right. letting them borrow my nervous system for a period of time. And then they come back and they're 37 years old again. And then it's like, okay, now we can deal with it. Right. Um, and to some extent, you're holding space for that person to use your energetic system. And again, I totally think we're going to figure this out someday quantum mechanically, how that actually energetically is occurring. But I, I, I find that absolutely fascinating that that event can take place with a shared energy. Totally. And that's actually, are you familiar with the Heart Math Institute? Yeah. They, are, they figured out how to measure that. Yeah. I don't know that they know. I mean, what's been interesting to me is, and I'm not trying to put myself on any kind of pedestal here. I've just been able to do this for a long time. I don't know exactly why. Probably I'd looked at it. I grew up being outside like a lot. Um, and that's probably has a lot to do with it because that's what happens when we're outside, when we're in nature, because it's a natural way to be. And it's actually one, interestingly enough, it's one of the reasons why people feel so calm when they get around a horse because a horse is massive. Like I'm 200 pounds. My horse is 1200 pounds. He got me by six times. His heart rate is resting heart rate is 38 to 40 my resting heart rate is about 65 so when i get in his energy field even though he's not purposely going oh here i'm going to wrap you up in this i just get in that and i go yeah because that's what happens and we can do that with our kids we can do that with our our significant others we can do that with our very best friends and it's like and we can learn to do that purposely and purposefully. And uh, so Michael is right that a lot of times that trauma is, is very young developmentally, but also what's really interesting about it is if somebody goes really young developmentally and we try to talk to them, we actually create trauma right. versus just being with them and sort of wrapping them up and it's a little bit different than holding space. It's actually a purposeful process. 
in my world of of energetically wrapping somebody up and um and sometimes it's appropriate for me to put my arm around them for instance and sometimes it's not but um but that's in part what we're doing when somebody comes up for instance sort of to make this a little bit more concrete for folks is that if somebody comes up and just like leans on you and goes i don't know what the fuck to do i'm just my day's just been i mean that's what's happening and if we just hold them energetically and in this case maybe physically let's say it's one of our kids or it's our spouse or it's our one of our best friends or and it's and we just hold them energetically and some again sometimes physically they grow up they're just fine but if somebody comes up and just like almost collapses into you and we go oh well tell me what's happening and yeah and and then tell me that and it just doesn't work it pulls us out of that place and and um i think many times as men we are taught and some women too but we are taught that we are supposed to fix things instead of instead of be with yeah and <laughs> um and i mean that's a big deal and it yeah. and it's also really cool that we can fix things i mean so i'm not saying that it's an either or thing it's like right um well i think um, it's the combination that's the most powerful right because i'm right my entire life has been a fixing life and for me, holding space has been a much harder thing because I'm uncomfortable holding space because I mm-hmm. want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that's been a ama- it's been a, a heavy journey of mine to learn to let it be for as long as it takes. Because yes. my entire nervous system is twitching to change that which appears to be not aligned with health. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I'll give you my examples. I I, I went to Arizona to study integrative medicine. And in 2006, I walk in there blind allopathic physician. I know drugs, I know disease. And then I come out of there with my blinders wide open. They left me with this entire vision of the world, which was completely different. And I was ready to scream it from the rooftops. And I come back to my office, I come back to my community and I want to give all this information away. Here's a better way to live. And people are showing up with their hands in my face going, please don't do that. I don't want this. And I'm like, but Mm. wait a second, I'm here to teach you. I've been given a gift to give to you Mm -hmm. and zero ability to be like, okay, guys, let me know when you're ready. And I'll be here to give the information if you want. Instead, it was more of a bulldozer effect and it was terrible. And it was a, it was a big culture shock for me at a, when I was a lot younger to, to not have that receptive audience to something that to me seems so it was, it was just, why wouldn't anyone want this? And I think for to dial it back in time, now it's quite clear to me that what I was bringing was my agenda without that energetic love attached to it. It was, you must do this because I want to save you for somebody who doesn't feel broken or frankly, to some extent isn't broken. Right. And 
therefore i think you know the circa 2022 version of me is very different where now i'm actively going out trying to look at this from a different perspective of space and meeting people where they're at mm-hmm. yeah and there's a there there are a couple things that i work with a lot and one of them is how do i create an opening how do I create an opening for somebody to step into that? And meaning step into that opening. Right. And, and then when they do choose to step into that, that I'm available for contact. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a process in our society for, I believe, many different reasons, but we oftentimes think helping people is almost, I'm a little hesitant to use this word because I don't want to jump into a religious thing, but we, we get almost evangelistic about it. Right. Like this is the way this is, we, yeah, this, and there's no opening in that we, we are, we are stepping into somebody else's space. We're actually crossing a boundary. And then when we cross boundaries, well, what do we have to do? We have to protect ourselves because that's how we're made. And um, the idea of creating an opening and letting somebody step into that means that no boundaries are crossed. And in fact, there's a process of being able to, um, for somebody to step in and be curious. and, And if I'm available for contact when they come in, then I get to influence them and because they're asking for it. Um, and again, it's the same thing, you know, I try to do with clients is the same thing I try and do with my relationship. Same thing I try and do with my horses is to create openings and be available for contact when somebody steps into them. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead. I was saying that, that, that feels so much like, another discussion you came up with when we were there living in power and not in control because to some extent what I was doing was trying to control the health narrative of people that I loved. right these are my staff that I truly care about so I came in with an agenda that was controlling even though it was a positive agenda it still was controlling I didn't come in with power the right way so let's let's talk about that if you don't mind loving and living in power versus control um yeah thanks for bringing that up the um before i step into this i want to acknowledge that these are my definitions this is what i've come up with um People could speak to this from a different perspective and a sort of semantically come up with different definitions. So just, uh, I I just want to put that out there that way. Um, And if they do, literally more power to them. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that for real. Um, So control in my world is that thing that we do when we don't trust. 
And that might be not trusting ourselves. It might not, I mean, it might be not trusting ourselves, not trusting another, not trusting the environment, not trusting the situation, but control is that thing that we do when we don't trust. And there can be various levels of that. It can be really intensely heavy duty, or it can be just periodically we don't trust because of something or another. And that doesn't really promote contact and it doesn't really promote relationship. And it really, the big thing that it inhibits is choice. Um, the, again, in my world, and this can be seen as semantical, so I think I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. um, is power is the ability to influence another and be influenced. So it's both ways. It goes both ways. The ability to influence and be influenced in contact with another in relationship. So I want to be influenced. I want to be influenced by my partner. I want to be influenced by my 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 cat i want to be influenced by the trees outside i want to be influenced by my clients i want to be influenced by you and i have been actually a great deal and i also want to be able to influence so for me i mean just think of that think of how if we can energetically do that like i can actually ask a horse to move if I'm truly in contact and truly in relationship with a horse, I can ask a horse to move and not even touch them. And then I can pick up on what they're, the way that they're influencing me, you know, are they, do they feel safe? Do they, are they getting what I'm asking? And then it becomes this conversation between us and then it feels magical. And it's the same way. It's the same way between uh, a parent and a, a child like that whole thing of you know chowder what what's the old saying they're supposed to be seen and not heard right it's like i want my little three-year-old or i want my teenager i want my i want my neighbor's kids to influence me i want to be influenced i want to be touched and that then allows me to influence and to touch. And again, that may or may not be physical, but uh, yeah, I want, I want that. That's, that's actually to me, that's the richness that happens in life. Yeah. And I think of also adding to this, you know, a lot of fear that drives control. I can just say, even from my own perspective, having learned so much about the aspects of nutrition for health and seeing Mm -hmm. this just dramatic onslaught of disease in young kids falling into a, a struggle with how much time do I allow a person to make mistakes, knowing that those mistakes are going to have drastic consequences Mm -hmm. before I try and do something in power that often still feels like control, even though I'm really trying not to. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredibly tight rope dance to walk now because, you know, in years gone past, the deck wasn't so stacked against health. And I feel right now the deck is so stacked against health. I have a lot of fear. 
and and I try not to let fear drive my decision making at all. But I I be a complete liar and a fool to say that I don't because you know I've two eighteen year old kids in the last five years with multiple sclerosis. Never thought it was possible, mm-hmm. and now we're seeing youth getting diseases that are lifelong and devastating. And I know the antecedent upstream risk factors because I know the science. Right. But boy, is that a ter- very tricky thing to then come out and state X, Y, and Z is what you need to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think, again, how we do that is, to, is what really matters. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly in the same position, but people, I mean, I do try and include uh, in, in the work that I do. I'm pretty darn holistic. And, um, you know, I clearly don't know. I'm not even in the same ballpark as you around medicine, for instance. Um, I know a few basics and, you know, but it's like, how do I do that? How do I offer that to somebody? And, And how do I, again, create an opening so somebody can begin making choices? Yeah. Um, an awful lot of times people make choices because they don't certain choices because they don't have a choice. If that makes any sense at all. It does. And, and it's like a choice, a a toggle switch choice of yes or no is not a real choice. It's like, well, yes, I'm going to do this or no, I'm not going to do this. That's not a real choice. A real choice is a continuum. And we get to pick and choose in there. Um, yeah, I, I'm sort of, I worry. I worry at times about how we are holding our health and, and the, uh, what would I say? The lack of congruency between what we, how we, how we want to be healthy and what we're willing to do to be healthy. Yeah. And again, I think that lack of congruency is either a protective process or a, a process of just not knowing. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who just don't know. Yeah. And not because they're, they're not intelligent. They just haven't learned it yet. Yeah, it sort of gets to the, uh, if you haven't seen the black swan, you don't think they exist, but well, it's not that, you just haven't seen it. And so I think, you know, you look at all these young children that I take care of who live in food deserts and locations where their access to any quality, food, green spaces, love, a lot of things are just lacking. And to expect them to do X, Y, and Z, because I have the ability to tell them about it's it's, it's, you know, it's just, a, it's not what's real. Right. And so what's real. And again, I've, to your point, trying to hold open spaces. I've learned since my early follies after my fellowship program was to really just try and find these kids and love them in their location. And mm-hmm. just be like, Hey, you know, I love you so much sitting here that let, let's talk a little bit about what, you know, your body really yeah. wants for you. 
right? And yeah, come at totally. it instead of coming at it from the, you know, you're killing yourself by eating these donuts, right? The, right. the message is terrible there. Well, and the, and when we can say something lovingly and show something to somebody in a loving way, that's an opening and they will receive that more. That's where the power of peace comes in. Yeah. That's that, you know, contact in relationship. Super, super quick story. My kindergarten teachers named Mrs. Sowers, who I know is no longer alive. I was mid twenties. I went back to where I grew up. Uh, my mother was a teacher. She taught in the same school district that I was, that I went to school in. And I went, I was just walking around the school and I went into Mrs. Sowers' room. And uh, basically to tell her how wonderful she was because she was truly a lifesaver to me. That little kindergarten teacher, I was there three hours a day. A lot of stuff was going on in my family. And she was actually packing her bags literally for the last time. She was retiring. That was her last day of, of teaching. And we sat down and talked and, and, you know, I was shocked that she actually remembered me, but I also passed on to her the depth of influence that she had on me in my life. And uh, we both then sat there and sobbed with each other and hugged on each other and, and, uh, you know, and I can guarantee you, she did not do anything, quote, profound, like come up with these. She just loved on us and yeah. uh, let me be in a safe place. And the and it, it sort of comes to a place of everybody wants to know two things. They want to know if they're safe and where do they belong. And if we can provide that, even if it's, you know, a half an hour um, consultation with you in your office. If you provide that, that's, that can be a big deal. Yeah. I mean, just a little bit of an aside, the doc that I went to for oh, probably 33 to 35 years, just, well, retired and went to New Zealand. <laughs> like, and it was like, and I'm sort of going, be, because I would go in and three-fourths, maybe 90% of our sessions, not sessions, but appointments were, you know, how are you? What's going on in your life? Oh, well, let me check this out. But it was like, um, the relational part is truly what's healing. And if yeah. you can provide that, we don't know what impact we're going to have on somebody. Yeah. And that's the exact part of the medical experience that's being stripped away by the corporate entities that are driving medical care, which is the saddest part. And yeah, right. that's, you are blessed to have had somebody who is of the old school with you all those years. And I'm attempting to maintain the old school as much as I can within the framework of a very broken system. Uh, because I truly believe that you're exactly right. And I think more of my gift to my patients is my ability to hold space and be with them during whatever they're suffering through. Mm -hmm. And which was one of the great lessons of Austin for me was how much pain I had buried in order to hold space. 
Right. And which was a major problem of mine, not letting it pass through me in order to hold space. I was mm-hmm. burying it. And that awareness was incredibly powerful. Um, yeah. And, and when we're trying to do what you're trying to do is like helping somebody cope with a dysfunctional system is not helping them move toward health. That's one of the big things that happens therapeutically that I run into and you're describing running into virtually the same thing from, again, a little bit different door, but it's, it's like the, how can we come in and be, be medically undomesticated? Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, how can I come in and be, you know, therapeutically undomesticated? How can we be undomesticated parents? How can we be undomesticated partners or wives or husbands? And, and it's that moving away from all of that top down, uh, this is how we do it. And a lot of that is driven by money, obviously. And um, how do we do that? And that to me is a pretty big deal. Uh, Maybe I'll start a group in honor of Traver called the uncivilized physician. (laughs) Uh, Well, either that or, or think about, I mean, I'm putting together a whole thing on uncivilizing and a class, hopefully uh, a master mind class on for therapists on how do you do therapy from an undomesticated perspective uncivilized perspective yeah and um actually i know graver really well traver you know he's one of my dearest friends at this point and it's like i have no doubt that he would support that i certainly would support that how do you do that i mean that could be revolutionary yeah that's something yeah, down the road when, when free time comes up, I'd love to talk to him about setting up something because I think physicians, providers of care are, like you're saying, are in deep need of this ability. And, and yours truly has been blessed to be exposed to you, Michael, and Traver mm. for five days, which honestly in my heart felt like a year the amount of learning I had, the amount of gifts I feel I was given, the amount of energy that was shared, you know, Dewey, it's, um, it's just a, uh, it's a heartfelt joy to have experienced what I experienced and mm. to still live that experience. I could tell you, mm-hmm. I still live it every day. Um, in that. so, in so many ways, uh, the, the, the journey that brought me to Austin has just been the gift that just keeps on giving. And now to your point, I feel so almost like I did coming out of Arizona. So dialed into sharing this gift with others. Um, And that's the Genesis of these three interviews with Mm -hmm. Traver, Michael, and now you, the coup de grace is because I think these words are, are just, there's so much wisdom to be shared for people to garner a new way of looking at the world that they they can practice, right? Mm -hmm. Medicine, medicine is an art that we have to practice every day. And I think, you know, relational beings have to practice being relational every day. And I am 
trying desperately to learn how to be as relational as possible. And, and that experiential learning that I mm. was fortunate to get was not attainable in books. I mean, I tried everything. I read everything I could get my hands on. And I don't think I ever would have understood it the same. Mm. And, and having had that experience with you for five days and with the other gentlemen that were there was life-changing. And I can't tell you anything more than just how grateful I am to have had that time with you. And now this two hours of absolute joy, listening to you discuss these topics that shareable now with the world, that it's, it's just, it warms my heart in so many ways. Well, thank you so very much. I, I, I deeply appreciate that. And, and I also am going to do a shout out for uh, Michael and Traver. I mean, both of those men I love and respect very, very much. And uh, the ability to work with them in relationship and uh, with the level of respect that is between the three of us is is uh, has been frankly incredibly healing and remarkable for me and um, so I think that there's some magic that happens there yeah and yeah, and the magic happens because and of the relationship that we have between each other of the respect and of the relationship that happens in the group of men, because uh, every man in that group was, every man stepped up, every man. Yeah. And uh, there were some times that weren't easy. Yeah. Um, and the idea of going through some tough times and coming out okay is actually what creates depth in relationship. And yeah. so um, I'm honored to have been able to share some of that with you. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, Dewey. And for everyone listening, you're getting a amazing gift in this case, energetically and verbally, you're getting verbal from what you're hearing, but I guarantee you, <laughs> I guarantee you the amount of energy coming out of this man is emanating all over the world. And it is with so much pleasure that I get to say thank you and, and how grateful I am. And until next time. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, let's let this settle the way it settles and see what happens. And go from here. We'll play some more. Much joy, my friend. All right. Thank you. Well, I hope that interview was everything you wanted it to be, because for me, it was everything I wanted. And I know from the get-go, when he put out that accountability question, I knew we were going to head to places that were special. And that only happens when you have somebody like Dewey who thinks profoundly and really has gone through the process of living and learning to be able to dispense such knowledge in a way that is palatable and 
digestible and transferable to all of us, especially the men. And I say this with all the love in the world, you know, we men need this therapy. We men need this understanding of how to be more relational. You know, we have grown up in a society that has taken some of that away from us. And my journey has brought me to this place where I think this information needs to be out there. And these three men, Trevor Boehm, Michael Gay, and now Dewey Freeman, have provided a framework from which I hope all of the men listening have a, a stepping off point to start their own journey or continue on their journey in whatever way, shape, or form that looks like in order to become the best versions of themselves for themselves. And then in relationship with their wife, friend, children, family members, and whatever it is. So you can live your most authentic and beautiful life and give away the gifts of who you are. Because everybody has gifts. And I would love it if you, the listener, had more awareness and ability to give away your gifts to the world because that's what makes us all special and beautiful. So with that, hug those kids and have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this AudioCast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. It does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.